My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. So I'm thrilled to be joined today by Eliane Glazer, who's written a fascinating book. I think it's just called Elitism, isn't it, Eliane? It's called Elitism, A Progressive Defence. So, Eliane, you're an academic, you're a writer, you've worked in various kind of elements of the media. How do you describe yourself to people, though? So, writer, lecturer and producer, I guess. Yeah, writer, lecturer and broadcaster. All the classic characteristics of the liberal elite. And your book, in a sense, is a kind of statement on behalf of the union of the liberal elite. It's a kind of defence of that. It's fascinating in that. Now, I want to get into the core thesis of your book in a moment. But I'm interested when I have guests on this programme to kind of find out where did the book come from? Can you trace a particular moment? Were you in the shower or were you listening to someone talking drivel and you just thought, I can't stand it anymore? Or were you inspired by somebody else? Was it six months ago? Was it six years ago? Where did the idea of this book germinate? Yeah, I guess I can trace it back to a few key moments which were framed as a kind of victory for the ordinary citizen or a victory for people power. And yet they just didn't seem like that to me. So I guess one of those moments was the MPs expenses crisis which, as you'll remember, just came right after the financial crash when the banks were bailed out to the tune of billions. And yet the newspapers and the media was suddenly filled with squabbles over bath plugs costing 88p or very small amounts, which were claimed on expenses by MPs. And this seemed to be emblematic of a kind of displacement, which was a way of redirecting public anger, which had been building up against financial elites. And I guess during the anti-globalisation movement and campaigns like that, that all of that public anger against private profit and tax havens, monopolies, and so on, was now curiously being redirected towards a different kind of power, or rather displaced from power, financial power, and onto political authority. So actually, the full guys ended up being political leaders, rather than, you know, the bankers. I mean, I realised there was a lot of anger against bankers, which hasn't entirely gone away. But I thought it was really interesting that suddenly public anger was being directed against political authority, elected officials against the state. You know, there's been a lot of anger about the state being kind of too top-down, very patronising and so on. And also against institutions, so both political institutions, but also other kinds of public bodies and also cultural institutions, professional bodies, experts. And obviously, all of that anger against political leaders and professionals and so on 
has really reached a peak with the rise of populism. And what's really interesting, I think, during the coronavirus is that that populism has obviously segued into a really interesting kind of top-down um, rule by government. So there's an interesting kind of related question about has populism gone away? And I think that populism really hasn't gone away. And I think the ease with which it's segued into this kind of top-down authoritarian model shows just how thin the rhetoric of people power and empowerment of ordinary citizens really is. So we're in danger of walking around the core thesis of the book and not speaking directly to it. So I'll ask you the question we ask everybody on this podcast. So Eliane Glazer, what is your big idea for the kind of new era we're moving into? Yeah, so I guess we've heard so much anti-elite discourse in the media and in public speeches and commentary over the last few years. And I think what the coronavirus crisis has taught us is really about remembering the value of those people that we call elites. So I'm talking about professionals, doctors, and so on, and experts, you know, scientists who are racing to come up with a vaccine or a treatment. And really, you know, when push comes to shove and we find that we're vulnerable as human beings, we realise that we're desperately dependent on people who have expert knowledge and expertise. And then there are other forms of elites as well, so political leaders. So I've mentioned the imposition of top-down rule during the crisis. But actually, again, it teaches us that when times are hard, we need to turn to a top-down authority who is going to tell us what we need to do You know, when lockdown needed to be imposed. And that was absolutely crucial. And that can really only happen top-down. I mean, there's really interesting debates about top-down versus bottom-up in terms of crises like climate change. But here it was quite clear that political elites or so-called political elites are really essential. And then journalists, you know, the journalistic commentators have been called liberal elite, you know, the members of the kind of supposedly complacent elite establishment. But again, you know, we've been so reliant on those sources of journalistic information during this crisis. And then finally, the cultural elite. And I think that so many of us during the lockdown period, you know, and I'm not just talking about the middle classes, but, you know, really, I think this has really resonated very widely, is a reminder of the things that not just save our lives, but also enrich our lives. So the books that we leave, you know, languishing by our bedsides, never pick up because we're working too hard. You know, the poetry that we might hear on the radio, musical performances, we might watch a theatre performance that we couldn't make it to the actual theatre pre-lockdown, but suddenly we really learn to appreciate these sources of rich cultural sustenance. But, you know, as we all know, theatres, music venues, newspapers, all these institutions, you know, which produce our culture and journalism are under really existential threat, you know, government bailouts notwithstanding. So I think that what we really need to do is to rediscover what it is we value about those groups and individuals that we've come to call elite but also then have a deeper conversation about how these people and these groups came to be called elite in the first place. You know, what has become problematic about these groups and these institutions? What do we need to mend and what do we need to reframe about them for a post-deferential or anti-deferential age? 
And I think that's where we might slightly differ in terms of our account of what has to be done. So, I mean, there's so much to unpack and so much of interest in the book. Let me take a couple of strands and then we'll get to this issue, Eliana. What do we do about it? Or what might we hope to do about it? So one point that I think you make powerfully in the book is that the groups that you talk about, politicians, public service managers and journalists to an extent, cultural producers are subject to much higher levels of kind of accountability than the people who really hold power in society. Now, those may be changing. We saw the tech giants being hauled up before Congress yesterday, I guess. But I think one thing you want to say is that this broadly defined kind of liberal middle class elite that you're talking about is continuously hamstrung and also hamstrings itself in a way, ties itself up in knots in trying to legitimise what it does. That's right. And I think There is disproportionate scrutiny, which is directed at public bodies. And, you know, that's understandable to some extent if they're receiving public funding. But there's this, you know, even in the word accountability, this need to account for oneself almost suggests a kind of delegitimacy that these institutions hold, that they have to account for themselves because they're somehow luxurious or excessive or comfortable or need to be sort of taken down a peg or two. So I think that they have been subject to disproportionate scrutiny. I think, and that also relates to this issue of transparency, which, you know, again, it has positive connotations that publicly funded bodies should be open to kind of democratic scrutiny. But there's a downside to this kind of constant demands for transparency and accountability, which is that, as you say, these institutions are sort of in a defensive crouch. They're unable to actually operate and produce really kind of excellent products or really good quality information or, you know, cultural productions or whatever it is, because they're spending so much time accounting for themselves. And I think that these attacks have a counterproductive effect on actually the quality of the product they produce. And I think that take the example of the media. So the media, you know, was hammered for, say, not predicting Brexit and Trump and so on. But this is an industry that has been hammered by decades of decline and kind of neoliberal undermining. And so these institutions, in a sense, there's a sort of vicious circle that they are unable to produce work to a standard which the public expects. And then they are hammered even more and undermined even more. And then they're even less able to produce, you know, in the case of the media, sort of journalistic quality. So there's a sort of race to the bottom and an unfairness, I think, there and a double standard. Now, you use that phrase defensive crouch. I had this notion, your mark told me it was wrong, that I could see your editor sending you back the proofs a few weeks ago and saying, you need to make some COVID references. And you've done that. And you even managed to get Marcus Rashford into the book, which gives it a terribly kind of contemporary feel. I did feel that this was probably something which you had, you'd gone through the book and thought, I need to put in five COVID references. And I don't know, I'll put in Marcus Rashford. But what you, I don't think, and I, I read the book quickly, it's fantastically bracing read, is I don't think you refer to Black Lives Matter. And I'm interested in whether in a sense... You see this as exemplifying the issue that you describe, because certainly, you know, I think a whole lot of organizations, and I would include the RSA in that, have adopted a defensive crouch in the sense that, you know, we issued a statement, it wasn't right, it wasn't strong enough, we got hammered for it. Our own staff felt we hadn't done enough. We went through a really kind of difficult, painful process of self-examination, self-criticism. It felt very, very, very difficult. I think it was probably developmental for us, but it was bloody tough. And I know that an awful lot of 
progressively minded organisations, arts organisations, have been through similarly really kind of tough self-examination kind of processes. And I spoke to someone a few days ago who works with the private sector, and I said, how's the anti-racism discourse working with you? You know, And she said, oh, it's fine, really. But she said, you have to understand most of the organizations I work with are just starting from much, much further back. So you know, they're not getting into the discourse, really, about white supremacy or anything like that. They're kind of just getting into the stage of, well, maybe you ought to take our diversity targets a bit more seriously. And I thought, when I read your book, it reminded me of that, really, that the kind of progressive, liberal, elite institutions have been tying themselves up in knots, maybe for good reason, whilst maybe more powerful organisations have not had to go so far. Is that an exemplification of your argument? Yeah, it is absolutely related. And I think that what's happened is that there's been a move away from traditional politics and towards the culture wars. So a kind of a legitimate political debate between what used to be called left and right, the 1% versus the 99% has been you know, in a, in a kind of a, a really productive democratic opposition between just desserts versus redistribution. That productive political polarisation, if you like, has been replaced by really unproductive, really damaging divisions based on identity. And I think that for the right, this has played out really well because we no longer scrutinise private profiteering and we no longer are concerned with economic inequality. You know, when actually about a decade ago, economic inequality was really high up on the agenda, both actually the right and the left. But there's now been a move away from economic inequality and material inequality, which I think is the fault line that really matters. And towards these issues of culture, and I think that in the book I argue that that has been accomplished by the right, by this diversion of public anger from economic elites to cultural, intellectual, journalistic elites, professional and political elites. But as you suggest, this is happening on the left as well. And I think this is really undermining the progressive cause, that the left is no longer campaigning on, the, I think, the really successful and resonant political territory that, say, Bernie Sanders, you know, won so many success, you know, although he ultimately fails, but he made great gains on this kind of actually quite retro platform of economic fairness and redistribution and equality. And now we have the move towards culture. And that is by no means to minimise the claims made by Black Lives Matter, because, of course, economic inequality absolutely maps on to race. So these things are absolutely related. And of course, racism is still absolutely current and active as a prejudice. But I do think that there is something, as you suggest, undermining of the progressive course in this turn towards identity politics on the left. And in a way, you know, the right has got us exactly where they want us. You know, the left is split between liberals and radicals these issues about statues and very symbolic, you know, kind of binary, yes, no, are you for or against issues are just kind of a ready-made wedge with which to split the left. So while I think Black Lives Matter was absolutely essential in so many ways, the general shift towards identity politics has been incredibly undermining on the left. And again, as you suggest, this conversation about privilege, and you know, I'm always amused by conversations about checking your privilege. You know, if people are checking their privilege, that means that the truly powerful people are not in the room. 
because they're not going to spend their time being self-reflexive in that way. So I asked you ahead of this conversation, which is a bit cheeky of me, but I asked you to look at my annual lecture that I delivered a few weeks ago. And that's perhaps where we can explore where we differ. So what I absolutely share with you, I think, one of the reasons I found the book so exciting is the idea that we have to make authority work. And that I think that the left is too often thoughtless about authority, partly in a way because it kind of has this romantic notion that you don't need authority at all. And in my lecture, where I argue for this concept of the age of reflexivity, an age where, as it were, we reflect more on our own nature and we work harder to overcome the inherent kind of traps and flaws and dysfunctionalities of our nature as social beings. And in that, I call for kind of reflexive authority. So I think authority needs to exist. I think that authority needs to renew its legitimacy. And I think that liberal democracy will not work unless we can renew the legitimacy of those in authority. But this is where I think we may disagree, because I believe, in a sense, the way to renew that legitimacy is through negotiation, in a sense. It's through leaders finding different ways of engaging people so that you have, as it were, a negotiated authority gained through consent and through deep engagement. Whereas I think you possibly want to argue that that leads to a process of lowest common denominator of responding to people who don't have the time or the inclination to think about complex issues. And you even argue in the book, which is brave of you, of course, that against transparency, you say we need to go back to leaders being encouraged to make decisions behind closed doors. This idea that everything has to be discussed with everybody is completely hopeless. Whereas, of course, I favour methodologies like deliberative democracy, which adopt the reverse strategy of putting everything on the table, but inviting citizens in and saying to them, well, look, it is difficult. Authority is difficult. And that if we find ways of enabling citizens to understand how difficult authority is, that is the route to a new, as I say, negotiated form of legitimacy. That is a difference between us, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting, this issue of authority, which I guess... You know, and you asked me at the beginning where this book came from, and I guess this question of authority is one that I return to so often. You know, and I found lots to agree with in your lecture, particularly with regards to, you know, trying to plug politics back into the realities of people's lives in this kind of bottom-up way. And I do believe in the bottom-up in that respect, that I really think that reinvigorating politics, you know, you have to somehow find ways to plug into issues like care, caring responsibilities. And there's really interesting politics, I think, coming out of the realities of having to care for children or older people. And, you know, some of the really interesting grassroots activism that's come out of the mutual aid groups in the coronavirus crisis. And, you know, the wave of unemployment that's coming down the line, the need to produce different kinds of work to overcome loneliness and, you know, building co-ops and forms of communal solidarity and so on. So I think, you know, I'm not entirely, you know, kind of top down um, in my approach, but I guess that I agree with you that progressives have really got themselves tied in knots about this issue of authority. And you can see that in left organizations, that there's so much obsessive attention about the page, the structure of, you know, of the organization itself, you know, which is a form of reflexivity and it's important, but it's also it threatens to become about the process rather than the ends. 
that as you say you know there's a squeamishness about hierarchy you know and i think there's a there's a fundamental confusion about hierarchies and inequalities in terms of institutions you know the offices that people hold and you know in that reads across to standards, you know, excellence. There's an idea that if you level all of these things, if you get rid of hierarchies, authorities, you know, forms of closed knowledge, and so on, that this will produce a kind of egalitarian society. But I think what's happened is that we're taking aim at the wrong kinds of inequality, that we've lost sight of the inequalities that really matter, which is, you know, for example, the absolute acceleration of monopolistic power, you know, that we're seeing in with the tech giants in Silicon Valley, to take one important example. And that we really need to distinguish between good hierarchies and institutional forms of authority that benefit us and inequalities that don't. I mean, I think what we need to do is kind of have a really sustained conversation and a kind of inquiry to sort out what good authority would mean in the 21st century. I think that's really what we need. But I think that what's happened thus far is a kind of, particularly on the left, I think, is a kind of a knee-jerk throwing the baby out with the bathwater that, you know, in terms of politics, just because people who hold political office these days happen to be drawn from a narrow demographic background. And because the politics of those in charge has tended to cluster around the kind of centre-right or right-wing part of the political spectrum, we should therefore junk the system of liberal democracy that we have. So I think really across the board, there is this problem of baby and bathwater that we need to distinguish. Well, I absolutely agree with that. And this is what I'd like to turn to for the final part of our conversation, Eliane, which is, you know, what we do about this. And, you know, I'm talking to you as part of a podcast, but, you know, I feel a kind of visceral sense of urgency about this issue, which is that one of the other arguments, as you know, in my annual lecture is that we need a kind of reflexive solidarity. We need a solidarity that recognises how important solidarity is, how important belonging is, how important group is. But if you don't at the same time have a commitment to universalism and rationality, the danger is that the politics of group and identity can become very sectarian, very defensive, very kind of polarizing. Now, I discussed the annual lecture at an event with Tim Bale and Nezreen Malik. And you know what I argued in the end of that was, do we think liberal democracy is worth saving? And I think, you know, Tim's view was, well, you know, liberal democracy is maybe not as bad as you say it is. And, you know, yes, we need to change it, but we can. I think Nezri, she is explicitly more ambivalent in the sense that I think that her sense is that liberal democracy would have to change so much to be able to live up to its principles that it's almost inconceivable to imagine that it can do that. Now, I'm not sure what she thinks because we didn't get into this in the conversation, what lies on the other side of liberal democracy. But liberal democracy is very friendless at the moment. And the left has been taking pot shots at liberal democracy for a very long time. And in a critical race theory, builds on critical theory, which was in many ways a sustained attack upon liberal democracy based on the claim that liberal democracy really was the midwife of fascism. This project, the progressive project of renewing liberal democracy before it is discarded. <laughs> I feel at my late age in life that there's nothing more important to be done, but how do we go about it? <laughs> how do we go about it? Yeah. So, okay. So there's a number of things there. I mean, 
Look, I think that first we have to look at the phrase liberal democracy. Okay, so taking both those terms, liberal, I think, has become an impossibly kind of tainted term. So what the populist right has done to the word liberal is that, first of all, it's become indistinguishable from economic liberalism. So that's in Theresa May's speech, you know, liberalism and globalisation have left people behind. In other words, she's taken public anger against economic liberalism and turned it against liberal values. So it's kind of dead in the water from that. And then liberalism or liberals, in some ways it means left-wing, and that was what Theresa May was sort of getting at. But also liberalism has acquired power, as in the liberal elite. So it's got a reputation of kind of centrist dads, if you like. That's me. (laughs) So it's kind of impossibly tainted with these connotations of complacency, you know, which are kind of historical accretions, I guess, or the ammunition that the populist right has directed at that word. Democracy, I think, has, you know, suffered similarly. So, you know, I think what's happened with populism is it's rather like, you know, the advent of Christianity within Judaism, you know, and you get this with fundamentalism. Anyway, this is going on a bit of a tangent. But I think what happens is that you have these kind of sclerotic institutional disciplines, religions, you know, institutions, politics, and so on. And then periodically, you know, they start to fail. They're not meeting the public interest. And then you get this kind of upsurge of energy, which is destructive energy, as in populism, but it tries to restore the institution to the function that it was originally intended. So populism is paradoxical because it's destroying democracy, but it is also restoring democracy to its original, you know, the demos, its original function as representing the people in a kind of authentic way. Okay, so that was a very long introduction. But basically, I think that the phrase liberal democracy has become probably irrevocably tainted. But I think that the principles contained within it are still salvageable. But I think that what we need to do is to reframe those principles for an age which can no longer tolerate the old terms. So, you know, you mentioned checks and balances before and, you know, operating behind closed doors. I think when you put it like that, it sounds absolutely unacceptable. But I think that, and we saw this again with the Sanders campaign, if you have a political leader who advances a a truly egalitarian platform of policies that is truly redistributive and truly connects with the realities of people's lives. So, you know, unemployment, poverty, educational exclusion, illness, and all the rest of it. Then that political leader can be incredibly popular and gain incredible traction. And I genuinely don't believe, and we see this in New Zealand as well, with Ardern, that I genuinely don't believe that if politicians like that get into power, that people actually care whether they're operating behind closed doors, taking decisions, you know, involving deliberation and, you know, taking expert advice, select committees. I honestly don't think people mind as long as the policies are operating in the public interest. So I think, you know, there's really something interesting going on about old and new. And I was reminded when I read your annual lecture I was reminded of 21st century enlightenment, you know, some years ago, which I really agree with this, trying to kind of reinvent these principles like enlightenment, like democracy, which have become tainted through an accident of circumstance and through kind of neoliberal undermining. And yet they contain something which, if it's reframed and connects with people's lives as they are live now, 
I think has the capacity to have real genuine resonance with people. Well, we need to find a way of talking about this. I'm not going to fetishize the word liberal democracy. I agree with you that the genius really lies in the three core concepts of the Enlightenment, which are autonomy, universalism and humanism, or as we might say it, freedom, justice and progress. You know, but of course, the Enlightenment, capital E, is as tainted as liberal democracy is. So somehow, and this is the problem for the left, it seems to me, this is my passing shot, is the left has got to get over itself, you know, because you can write a lot of books and you can make a big impression pulling apart the reality of the Enlightenment, the reality of liberal democracy. But if we could just spend half as much energy trying to think through what are the conditions under which those principles could actually, authentically, really guide our lives and our society, that, it seems to me, is the question we should spend a bit more time on. And I hope that you and I and others will carry on in this conversation. Eliane, it's been fantastic to spend the time with you. Thank you so much. Well, likewise, Matthew. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.